Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, the skeleton inside you, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode includes Lovecraft horrors, robot parasites, and possessed partying. Come over to this spooky old house where I'm throwing a Halloween party in July. I'll tell you about some horror movies, and we might even get possessed. Number one, The Beach House, 2020, directed by Jeffrey A. Brown. Emily and her boyfriend Randall go to Randall's dad's beach house without asking for permission. Mitch and his wife Jane are there. Everyone hangs out drinking and eating edibles. Jane walks off and ends up in a strange glowing area. The house is surrounded by what looks like a fog. Mitch goes looking for her. The next morning, Jane looks real bad and Mitch is missing. Emily and Randall look for Mitch on the beach. Randall goes back inside and ends up trying to help Jane. Mitch shows up on the beach and Emily watches him walk into the ocean. When she approaches the water, she steps on a strange jellyfish looking thing that injects a tapeworm looking thing into her foot. She goes back to the house, removes the worm, and finds a sick Randall. Jane has become mindless and chases them. They escape Jane and end up in what they think is fog. A man on the radio tells them it's not fog and to avoid it. They break into a house. Emily finds oxygen tanks and kills Randall with one after he is taken over by the same thing that got Jane. Emily drives a truck away but ends up crashing. She leaves the truck and ends up in water. She's then on the beach where she becomes one with the ocean. Some weird fog and tentacle parasites are the killers. I'm starting to think that whenever someone describes a horror movie as Lovecraftian, it's a nice way of saying it sucks. Put the pitchfork down. I'm sorry. I have to be honest with you listeners. Stuff that I've watched that's been touted as great Lovecraftian movies have been some of my least favorites. I liked Annihilation. I liked Reanimator, which is based on a Lovecraft story, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm going to watch In the Mouth of Madness and come to the full conclusion on whether or not I like things that are referred to as Lovecraftian. If I don't like that movie, I'm done with movies that are brought up to me with that descriptor. Besides being called an amazing Lovecraftian film, I saw The Beach House compared to a movie called Sea Fever that I saw at the last Fantastic Fest. I didn't love Sea Fever either, but I recommend it over The Beach House. That's for sure. Sea Fever is a reskin of The Thing. The Thing is obviously the one you should watch. The Beach House stars Liana Liberato as Emily. I know her from the goofy but fun for the first season at least, Light as a Feather. She's joined by Noah Lugros, who played Randall, the carefree douchebag boyfriend character. 
Jake Weber, who played Mitch, the older husband, who may or may not have transformed into a shark after walking slowly into the ocean, and Marianne Nagel, who played Jane, the wife with more pills than anyone should ever have. The acting is alright. There's not much acting to be done. Emily is the only character that has any depth since she has to react to all the awfulness going on around her. It's easy to act douchey and crazy sick, so both Noah Lugros and Marianne Nagel didn't impress me. Jake Weber's Mitch didn't blow me away either. Strange, aloof, older dude? I could do that. What sets everything into motion in the beach house? As almost always, it's the wacky tabacky. This time in the form of edible chocolatey goodness. We're out of alcohol, let's bust out the reefer. I don't know if it's a good idea to get faded with an older couple when one of them pops more pills than Azale. That's a reference no one will get. Take a second and Google Azale, too high. It's a really fun song about taking a bunch of pills. What I was getting at is weed is the catalyst for disaster. It's not really. People destined to deal with a natural weirdness just happen to be high at the time. There is some neat effects work in the beach house. I dug the design of the weird jellyfish that washed up on the beach. Emily ending up with a living worm thing in her foot is disgusting and unnerving. I'd put it up with the most yeesh-inducing things I've ever seen if the toes on the prosthetic foot that the worm is pulled out of weren't so obviously fake. Whenever I'd start to feel grossed out by the worm removal, I'd just look at the toes to remind myself that what I'm seeing was something being pulled out of a prop and not the bottom of a foot. Yes, I'm, I'm not dumb, even if the digits looked astonishingly real, I'd know it was fake, but when the toes look like a foam prop, I'm much less grossed out by the effect. The beach house reminded me of The Mist, which I haven't sat down and watched yet. I've seen lots of videos about it though. A mist that you shouldn't go out into rolls into town. Watch The Mist, or The Thing, or Sea Fever over the beach house. Number 2, Meatball Machine, 2005, directed by Yudai Yamaguchi and Junichi Yamamoto. A factory worker named Yoji likes a girl named Sachiko. Alien parasites are turning humans into mindless necroborgs. Yoji kind of saves Sachiko from a salaryman. Yoji and Sachiko go back to his place where an alien parasite Yoji found comes to life and attacks Sachiko, thus making her into a necroborg. Yoji asks a father and daughter who know a lot about necroborgs to help. The daughter is partially infected and needs to eat necroborg parasites to live. The father has been purposely infecting people to harvest parasites for his daughter. Yoji is partially infected. He is still himself but has necroborg powers. He tries to save Sachiko but has to mercy kill her. More aliens are shown coming to Earth. The alien parasites and the father are the killers. As soon as the alien parasite in Yoji's apartment sprung to life and started attacking Sachiko, I knew I had made a huge mistake showing Meatball Machine on Blood and Bone. Why? Prolonged tentacle rape isn't something I'd like to promote? Mr. Yamaguchi and Yamamoto, can we talk candidly for a second? Was the tentacle sexual violence necessary? Why was more effort put into the sound effects for the tentacle assault than there was for the kicks that happened throughout the film. Y'all have two different sound effects that you play for kicks over and over, but boy oh boy did you flesh out the tentacle sounds. I'm going to leave it with saying the vine scene in the Evil Dead is more tastefully done. 
For a majority of the people that tuned into Blood and Bone, Meatball Machine was their first taste of the Japanese action gore genre. I'm sorry. It's undoubtedly the worst film I've seen in the genre, and I've seen quite a bit. Itchy the Killer, Machine Girl, Tokyo Gore Police, Robo Geisha, all of those movies are more fun than Meatball Machine. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure they have 100% less tentacle penetration also. That's the last time I'll bring it up, I swear. The best thing about Japanese action gore movies is the over-the-top, ridiculous, wacky practical effects and costumes. Meatball Machine includes what makes the genre great, but unlike its contemporaries, the gory costumes and effects are few and far between, barring the lullaby that is the 20-minute fight scene between Necroborg, Yoji, and Sachiko at the end. The first three minutes of Meatball Machine are action-packed and fun, then it's snooze-fest for the entire rest of the film. Yoji sucks. He doesn't even try to stop Sachiko from being turned into a necroborg. Sure, every time Yoji tries to stick up for himself or someone else, he gets his ass handed to him. But when the girl you like is in trouble, you have to at least try to take action. Yoji is one of the most unlikable protagonists I've seen in quite some time. Here are some things we see Yoji do. Jacket to the memory of a time he saw Sachiko on his lunch break. Hang out in a porno theater. What a great protagonist. He's so darn likable, ain't he? Why wouldn't I want to root for this loser creep? At one point in Meatball Machine, Yoji and Sachiko are actually going to get it on. She warns him that she has a hideous scar. She then reveals a fresh, infected-looking wound. Girl, you need to go to the hospital. That's no scar. If someone told me to prepare myself for something blue and then pulled out something red, I'm gonna be surprised. You can't be mad at Yoji for being shocked at the reveal when you misdirected him. Ugh, I'm defending Yoji. The main problem I had with Meatball Machine is the lack of out-of-this-world gory action that I've come to expect from this genre. You want to include that thing I said I wouldn't bring up again? Fine, it's your movie. But if you're going to include that, you best surround it with mind-blowing zany action so it doesn't end up being the only thing your movie is remembered for. One last thing to call out, Meatball Machine fails at doing a suit-up montage. You don't linger on every part of someone gearing up, then fade to black into the next part. You have to be snappy. I helped with a short called Wolf Investigations, The Millennium Bug. It had to be thrown together in 48 hours for a film contest. A much better gear-up montage is included in that short. Don't bother with Meatball Machine. If you are interested in the Japanese action gore genre, I recommend starting with The Machine Girl, a movie about a girl who ends up with a Gatling gun arm. Now that's a film. Number 3, In the Mouth of Madness, 1995, directed by John Carpenter. Trent, a man that appears to be insane, is visited by a doctor in an asylum. Trent tells the doctor his story. Trent was a fraud investigator. He was asked to look for a famous horror writer named Sutter Kane, who disappeared. Trent and Stiles, one of Kane's editors, traveled to New Hampshire after Trent found that combining Kane's book covers created a map to a location there. Weird stuff happened on the drive. Trent and Stiles found Hobbs End, which was thought to be a place Kane made up. Things in Kane's books were real in the town. Kane was staying in a church. Cain became a god due to the success of the books since his audience was so large and believed what they read. Cain told Trent he was a character he created and tasked Trent 
with taking his new book, In the Mouth of Madness, to the publisher. Trent refused, but was informed that he, in fact, delivered the book. Trent no longer knew what was real. That's how he ended up in the asylum. The doctor doesn't believe him. Creatures kill a bunch of people and Trent escapes the asylum. He goes to a movie theater to watch the film adaptation of In the Mouth of Madness and laughs maniacally as he sees the movie is all about his journey. Unknown evils are the killers. If you're an every episode fan of the podcast, you know that I don't see John Carpenter as some sort of god like most people in the horror community. Has he made some amazing movies? Yep. Has he made some stinkers? Yep. A Lovecraftian movie directed by Carpenter. Josh is going to hate this one, isn't he? How's In the Mouth of Madness? In the Mouth of Madness, you're a winner, baby. Congratulations, you have saved films that are described as Lovecraftian from being banished to the Shadow Realm. For now, at least. When a movie starts with heavy metal playing over footage of a horror book being printed, I'm skeptical. Interested, but skeptical. The whole score isn't heavy metal, only the credits. I'm not a big fan of Carpenter's scoring outside of Halloween, so I didn't love most of the music in Mouth Madness. I know, burn the heretic. Would I have preferred that heavy metal was front and center throughout the entire movie? Not at all. It wouldn't have been the right fit. I dislike a lot of 90s era horror scores. Where Mouth Madness shines is incredible practical effects work. I really dug the insane stuff that happens, like Styles turning into an abomination, the horrors that chase Trent, the simple weirdness of continuously seeing the same bicyclist while driving down a long stretch of road, and the subtlety of Kane's murderous agent having double pupils in his eyes. There's tons of interesting, unexplainable happenings in Mouth Madness that help showcase that reality is warping. I think one of my main gripes when it comes to more independent movies that are referred to as Lovecraftian is that nothing really happens in them. In Mouth Madness, you have Trent doing his damnedest to escape a reality that's not his until he finally accepts his reality isn't the actual reality. Here's a quote from the movie that really stuck with me. Styles tells Trent, A reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places. If the insane were to become the majority, you would find yourself locked in a padded cell, wondering what happened to the world. My simpleton understanding of mouth madness is that Cain became a god due to the power of belief. Since enough people believed what they read in his books, the fiction became reality. This idea kind of pops up in a show called Marianne that I covered what feels like ages ago. A book series about a witch named Marianne is written. When it gets more and more popular, Marianne gets stronger and stronger. Come to think of it, this idea also appears in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Freddy Krueger gets his power from people believing in him. I love the idea that collective belief can make something real. It's an interesting concept. Let's try it. Everyone start believing in a cheeseburger fairy who brings you a delicious cheeseburger tailored directly to your personal taste whenever you are in the need of one. I need one right now. Okay. No cheeseburger just yet. But if we spread the belief of this culinary sprite, maybe someday they will become a reality. You know who's currently real? Sam Neill, Mr. Jurassic Park. He plays Trent. He's good in Mouth Madness. It's definitely a hard role. How do you act like your reality has shattered? 
I just found out I'm a fictional character with no free will. How do I even feel once I come to this realization? Do I even feel the way I want or how the writer wants me to? Uh-oh. My brain done broke it. Two years after this movie, Neil was in another that featured a reality different to our own, Event Horizon. I love Event Horizon. Space and a hell dimension, sign me up. I'm more of a demonic entity fan over Cthulhu-esque monsters. The rest of the acting isn't bad either. Julie Carmen played Styles and worked for me. Jurgen Prochnow played Sutter Kane, and I did find him to be a little too textbook evil mastermind. I think it would have been more interesting to have Kane be a nerdier Stephen King type that is corrupted by people's belief in his work. It's brought up in the movie that Sutter Kane outsells Stephen King. That universe must really gobble up horror literature. That one statement really helps emphasize the enormous amount of people reading the Kane books. We're going to need more people than I thought to believe in the cheeseburger fairy. In the Mouth of Madness is what a great Lovecraftian movie should be, well put together with a bunch of unnerving reality-bending events. You can't just include some fog and tentacles and call it a day. It's definitely not perfect, but In the Mouth of Madness has at least restored some good faith for the Lovecraftian descriptor. I almost forgot to mention a specific creepy demon child in the movie. That kid skeeved me out. You'll know the one when you see it. Number 4, Night of the Demons, 1988, directed by Kevin S. Tenney. A bunch of teens are invited to a Halloween party at Whole House by an outcast named Angela, who is accompanied by her friend Suzanne. The pure Judy goes with her terrible boyfriend Jay. Another couple, Max and Franny, carpool with them. A trio, Stooge, Helen, and Roger. And Judy's ex-boyfriend Sal also attend. At the party, a seance is held, which leads to Suzanne becoming possessed by a demon that is freed from the crematorium in the basement. Suzanne possesses Angela by kissing her. Roger and Helen try to bail, but the gate in the brick wall that surrounds the house has disappeared. Angela kisses Stooge and bites off his tongue, thus possessing him. Suzanne seduces, then kills Jay. Stooge kills Max and Franny. Judy and Sal end up on the roof. Sal tackles Angela off the roof and dies after landing on a spike. Judy drops down to where Roger is. They climb barbed wire to escape. The demons are destroyed when the sun comes up. An old man's wife serves him a pie made from apples he put razor blades in, which kills him. The crematorium demon and old man apple razor blades wife are the killers. The old man did want to hurt people by handing out apples with razor blades in them, but I'm pretty sure no one has died from biting an apple embedded with razor blades. Night of the Demons? Weren't you supposed to watch Dog Soldiers? That was advertised as the movie that was going to be shown for the Blood and Bone where Night of the Demons was played. Yeah, that's correct. I meant to show Dog Soldiers, but there was some weirdness with its prime video status. Night of the Demons. Do I think it's a good movie overall? That's a tough one. Let's replace the word good with enjoyable to make the question a bit easier for me. Night of the Demons is enjoyable. Here's a list of things I enjoyed. The constant insults and comebacks to said insults. There's a lot of creativity in them and the dialogue. One of my favorite insults is festering F-wads. This is a family-friendly horror podcast. I'll talk about how Jay had his eyes gouged out, Max's arm was brutally ripped from his body, and how Linnea Quigley, who played Suzanne, pushed a tube of lipstick into her nipple, but I'm not going to use any potty language.
Think of the children. All of what was just brought up was done practically and looked good. I couldn't even tell if Linnea Quigley's boobs were prosthetic or just her fake ones during the lipstick insertion. Well, I could tell once the tube disappeared. I'm pretty sure her gals make an appearance in every horror movie she's in. Max's severed arm looks surprisingly great when it wasn't flying through the air to grab Judy. Steven Johnson designed the special effects makeup, so all the demon makeup is fantastic. Angela's is definitely the best of the bunch and gets the most screen time. The floating demon skull was delightful. It reminded me of the demons in Spawn. I wonder if Todd McFarlane was in any way inspired by Night of the Demons. Like the well-crafted special effects work, the rocking soundtrack and score are also a ton of fun. Dennis Michael Tenney wrote and performs multiple songs for the movie, my favorite being Computer Date, a song about a guy meeting up with a girl he found through a computer dating service. The Beast Inside is incredible and a close second. The soundtrack also includes Stigmata Martyr by Bauhaus. It's a rockin' time to be sure. Amelia Kincaid did a great job as Angela. She's definitely the standout performance. I loved her black wedding dress look and spooky sexy dance sequence. All the dialogue and other acting is atrocious in a fun way. Judy is played by Kathy Podwell. She might be a big character on Dallas, but I learned everything I know about Dallas from Freaks and Geeks. Due to the lines Judy had and Podwell's delivery, Judy comes off as a complete dumbass. It's endearing? One of my favorite line deliveries in the movie comes from Judy's younger brother when he scares her while she's in her underwear. <clears throat> wow, bodacious boobies, sis. You keep on going, you'll have to hire someone just to tie your shoes. Maybe don't comment on your sister's breasts, you weird little pervert. I'd like to bring up some more characters. Jay is one of the most unlikable boyfriends to ever appear in a horror movie. Piece of dookie boyfriend is a horror trope, but boy oh boy is J1 deplorable son of a gun. He's awful to poor idiot Judy. Locks her in a room, and then cheats on her with the first floozy he can find. Hey Jay, if you find a girl that looks completely out of it, drawing all over her body with lipstick, maybe you shouldn't try to bang her? Jay should have received much more than an eye gouging. I knew from the get-go that Judy would survive, but I never would have guessed Roger would be the other survivor in this 80s horror movie. Roger was the only black character. He's a smart dude. He nopes out of the situation from the start. Poor dude is going to need a ton of therapy. Judy probably won't because she's too stupid to understand anything that happened. I thought Judy was going to end up with her ex Sal, whose only crime was oozing with New Yorker energy. Night of the Demons is a fun time. It's goofy, it's silly, it's dumb. I give it a light recommendation and might check out the sequels sometime in the future. Number 5, Becky 2020, directed by Jonathan Millot and Carrie Murnian. After Becky's mom dies from cancer, her dad Jeff takes her to a house they all used to stay at. On the way, a prison break occurs. A Nazi named Dominic and his three companions kill correctional officers, a dad, and some kids. Becky and Jeff arrive at the house. Jeff's girlfriend Kayla and her young son Ty also arrive. Dom shows up at the house under the guise of looking for his dog. He and his cronies then capture Jeff, Kayla, and Ty at gunpoint. Dom looks for a key but can't find it. He learns that Jeff's daughter Becky is out in the forest after figuring out a dog that was killed wasn't actually Becky. 
After Becky makes contact with Dom using a walkie-talkie, Dom tortures Jeff to lure Becky to him. Jeff fights back and makes a run for it. Dom shoots and kills Jeff. Becky kills all the Nazis, saving herself, Kayla, and Ty. Dominic and his gang are the killers. First off, is Kevin James capable of being an intimidating Nazi leader? No. At no point in the movie did I find Kevin James scary. You know who made a great threatening Nazi leader? Patrick Stewart in Green Room. Now that's how you do it. Kevin James does try his best, but it's not enough. Joel McHale is a terrible dad in the movie. This all made sense once I realized his name is Jeff. Becky is a continuation of Community. Of course Jeff Winger would make a crap dad. Becky even looks like the love child of Jeff Winger and Britta. Joel's capped right off the bat. He's okay in this. He's a more believable parent than Aubrey Plaza in Child's Play, even though that's not saying much. The pastor from Kim's Convenience played Kayla, also fine. Lulu Wilson was pretty dang good as Becky. This 14-year-old girl did such a great job and easily stole the show. She perfectly encapsulated the deep rage inside Becky. It's a good thing Becky had this run-in with Nazis to quench her bloodthirst. Even before Nazi Kevin shoots her dad in front of her eyes, Becky needs some hardcore therapy. There's a demon in that kid. Let's run through Becky's murder spree. For kill number one, she stomps a broken ruler through a Nazi's neck and shanks him in the back over and over with a bundle of sharp colored pencils. I'll take this moment to bring up how intense and amazing the practical gore is. Becky's dispatchment of Nazi number one is so brutal, I almost felt bad for the Nazi, pet warning, dog killer. Yeah, this particular Nazi filled Becky's dog Dora full of lead. It's sad. Becky sees it happen, causing her rage to multiply. At least her other dog, Diego, makes it to the end, I guess. Nazi number two has a board with nails smacked into him a bunch before he falls into the water, giving Becky the opportunity to back a running boat propeller into him. That Becky's crafty. Nazi three is Kevin James himself. Early on in the movie, Becky jams the key the King of Queens is looking for into his eye socket, then pulls out the eye optic nerve and all. Kevin's bud tries to cut the eye out with safety scissors, but Kevin ends up having to do it himself with a knife. Someone's eye hanging out could easily be yeesh-inducing, but the whole ocular predicament is so over-the-top and silly that I wasn't grossed out at all. When Becky finally kills Adam Sandler's friend, she runs over the guy with an ATV that's pulling a mower attachment. If you ever need someone to mow Nazis, give Becky a call. After this, the last Nazi, one who decided to give up his life of murder after killing some kids, tells Becky he should have never left her alone since Kevin James almost murdered her. Becky then quickly picks up a handgun Kev dropped and plants a shot in remorseful Nazi's dumb face. Damn, Becky, counter-terrorists win. Hell yeah. I realize this section has mostly been me recapping the kills. I don't normally do that, but it's hard not to go into detail about how a young girl brutally murdered a bunch of Nazis. Even though I loved the practical effects and Nazi killing action, I have a few gripes, well, nitpicks more like. A horrible stock sound of kids giggling is used when Becky is at a convenience store. The kids didn't even need to be audible, so that bothered me quite a bit. The stock door sound that's all over the place also had a cameo towards the end. Besides my obvious stock sound pet peeve, I also didn't like the music choice for what I'll refer to as Becky's theme. 
it includes a bunch of chanting and breathing and doesn't fit with what's being shown. It could be way worse, believe me I know, but I didn't dig it. Those two issues aside, Becky is a great time. I would have liked to know what the key was needed for. Nazi Kevin James said whatever it unlocked was important to all the races. Whatever that means. Maybe it was a cure for cancer? Nothing shown could have lived up to the hype. Check out Becky. I think this could have had a decent box office run if theaters were still a thing. Turns out Simon Pegg was supposed to be Dominic. I bet he'd make a really creepy Nazi leader. Number 6, The Current Occupant, 2020, directed by Julius Ramsey. A man wakes up in a psychiatric hospital with no memory after being shot. He finds out his name is Henry. An orderly, that's obviously a figment of Henry's imagination, tells him that he is the president. Another patient tells Henry she's his secretary of state. They try to escape together but fail. Henry tries to smother the woman who says she's his secretary of state with a pillow after he electrocutes her unconscious during an experimental trial because she told him to take her out if anything happened to her. Henry's informed that he was a failed politician who, along with his wife, was shot during an assassination attempt on the actual president. Henry's dead wife is the orderly he's been imagining. Henry tries to escape again. He's told that if he leaves before he's better, the delusion will completely take over. Henry escapes for a second, but is captured. He continues to believe he's the president. A bad assassin is the killer. I guess. What the hell, Hulark? Hulu Into the Dark has been stronger in year two up to this point. 90% of the Hulark movies are still garbage, but less stinky garbage than year one. The Current Occupant is one of the longest 90-minute movies I've ever seen. It felt like at least two hours. Why? Nothing really happens. Henry believes he's the president. For a second, I thought, maybe he is the president. Maybe he was awful and hated by the citizens of the United States, and over the course of the movie, he's going to slowly remember how much of a heinous tyrant he was before the assassination attempt. Yeah, that would be interesting. A man with a terrible past has amnesia. He learns about the man he was before the accident and is horrified. Why, wait, why did, why did I think Hulark would be capable of putting together an interesting movie like that? I must be insane. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I keep watching Hulark movies and expecting one to actually be amazing. Good Boy was okay, but I realize that no Hulark movie will ever truly be anything more than a quick snack between actual films. A movie called Palm Springs was recently released on Hulu in the beginning of July. My brain thought Hulu movie released at the beginning of July? Must be this month's Hulark. I knew it wasn't, but my brain still filed it under Hulark for a second. Palm Springs is amazing and should be watched. It has a fresh take on an old genre. Andy Samberg is in it. I can't say too much without spoiling some stuff. I went in with some information and it didn't really spoil it for me. Okay, I'll give you what genre it is. If you want to go in completely blind, stop listening for about five seconds. One, two, three, time loop. That's the genre. It's a fun time. You should definitely watch Palm Springs. Yes, Palm Springs is a terrible, 
terrible, terrible title for the movie. It's like if Saving Private Ryan was called World War II. Stupid. What I'm trying to say is I don't want to think about the current occupant at all. I'll come up with anything to distract myself from that colossal waste of time. I'm obligated to give my thoughts on it, though. One thing that I loathed in the current occupant was the overuse of a low frame rate effect. The effect never added anything to the movie. It's not even an attempt at slow motion. It's annoying and made the movie look even cheaper. I should say something positive. Barry Watson gives a decent performance as Henry. The location was more interesting than most Tulark movies. A bar wasn't even used in this one. The current occupant was a family affair. One brother directed and the other wrote it. I didn't enjoy the writing or directing. There is one hilarious moment when Henry calls a man that believes he's a space emperor Garrett over and over. Garrett is the man's real name and he hates it. Dang, that's the only part of the movie I remembered being enjoyable. And it was really, really stupid. I actually dug the Emperor character. He was played by Joshua Burge, and even though his screen time was limited, he was a much more interesting character than Henry. Don't waste your time with the current occupant. It has nothing to say. It's a political movie with no voice where nothing of interest happens. I hope the August installment of Hulark puts things back on track. Number 7, Ghost, 1990, directed by Jerry Zucker. Patrick Swayze gets shot, so Whoopi Goldberg has to tell Demi Moore that some dudes named Willie and Carl are responsible. Willie and Carl end up dying in accidents. Willie, Carl, and accidents are the killers. Topic 7, baby, so I'm just going to ramble like a lunatic. Demi Moore is kind of an idiot. Whoopi tells her ghost Patrick found the killers. Does Demi go to the police and tell them she saw the killer and followed him home? Or does she tell the police a ghost told her who the killer is? Come on, Demi. Even if a ghost is how you got the information, you can't tell the police that. Ghost title card is a jump scare. It's weird. The title jump scare is the scariest part of the movie. I like that the movie is about Ghost Patrick Swayze leveling up and learning new ghost abilities. Japan made a remake of Ghost in 2010. How the hell are you gonna give some sidewalk nuns a cashier's check for four million dollars? They could be con artists. You gotta give that cash to a reputable charity. I had fun with Ghost. Check it out if you want to see a movie with Ghost Patrick Swayze. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer, 76 Lovecraft Horrors, Robot Parasites, and Possessed Partying. If you like what you heard, leave a rating with or without a review on iTunes. Have you listened to my other podcast, Four or More? The podcast where I cover movie franchises that have four or more of them with my better half cat? A new episode of that will be out later this week. Keep your eyes peeled. Next, Blink is the Killer will be out on August 9th. Until then, just assume that you shouldn't go frolicking in any fog you see.